0: Welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? How do I market this thing? Mailchimp something? Yeah. We're going to be talking a lot about that today because I, hello everyone, along with Justin Dorfman. Hello everyone. Have a wonderful guest. This is Melissa Logan. Melissa is the founder of Constantia.io, which is a marketing consultancy, which is pretty cool. Melissa, great to have you on the podcast.
1: Thanks, good to be here.
0: Melissa, can you tell me a bit about Constantia.io and why you created it?
1: Yeah, sure. So Constantia is a marketing consultancy and we focus on open source and enterprise tech companies. I've been in tech for about 20 years at this point and started really in the dot-com era, working with Microsoft's PR agency way back when. About a decade after that, started working in open source and really felt like I was coming home and had found a good home at that point. It's interesting, when I started back in 2000, it was a time when Linux was still being called a cancer. It was really not as ubiquitous as you think of it today. I actually remember getting calls about... Microsoft to comment on Linux. And of course, they never really did at that time. And then kind of fast forward a decade, of course, I started working at the Linux Foundation. Microsoft embraced Linux. Really everything kind of came full circle and now open source is everywhere. But it really wasn't like that throughout my career. It really has happened just in the past decade.
2: Did you work with Dan Cohn by chance?
1: I did work with Dan Cohn briefly. I mean, I wasn't on CNCF, but I did work with Dan. Yeah, I'm really sad to hear that.
2: Yeah, yeah. For our users that don't know Dan, he was an executive at the Linux Foundation, and he was a sustainer. He's been to a few sustain events and really made a big impact in the Kubernetes community as well as some others. And he passed away from cancer, and I really just want everyone to know like a great has left.
1: I know. It's very sad when we lose people in the general open source community, and he had a pretty outsized impact on it.
0: Yes. So it sounds like you've been working mainly with large OSPOs, right? Open source program offices at Microsoft and Linux Foundation. Have you had any experience working with smaller organizations or smaller, say, repositories on
1: GitHub type stuff? So I have worked in the kind of foundation backed projects. And then now we also work with commercial open source companies. Most of them are probably larger projects.
2: You, yeah. With Apache Cassandra, how, yeah. how did you get involved with them? I mean, have been around for like a little less than 10 years, I believe.
1: Yeah, so I think yeah. when I started working at the Linux Foundation, I was focused really just on the Linux community itself. And back then, it was really focused on monitoring and understanding what was happening in the world of Linux and the Linux community, what's happening with the technology, to share that all out in different ways. So through social media, videos, blogs, etc., And the goal there was really how do we expand the universe of people who care about Linux to try to get more people to contribute and participate? It's not like we were trying to get more adoption. Linux at that point was still pretty ubiquitous, but how do you get more people to be interested and be contributing back? Because as an open source, that is a key benefit. When you have this broad ecosystem anyone can contribute, it really brings forward things that you wouldn't expect. And I've always loved that about open source. So in 2013 I think the Linux Foundation wanted to support other open source projects and figure out how can they take what they've learned from helping and supporting the Linux community to other open source projects that might need a boost. And we started this program called collaborative projects and the idea was to take those best practices on how to run it and help instantiate and build new ones and give them kind of an easy path to awareness and adoption. The first one that we did back then was this project called Open Daylight, and it was this open source software-defined networking. It was really exciting at that time in this space. So the first one that we launched was called Open Daylight, and it was an open source SDN project, software-defined networking. And I launched and ran marketing for that project. And not only at that time were we trying to create this new model, but also in the networking space, no one understood open source. They didn't really have an idea of what that means for networking. It hadn't really been done in that space at that time. And I remember the first six months really was focused on PR and just educating the market about what we were trying to do here. How on earth were we getting these bitter competitors to work together and figure this out? Why would you do this? Can it actually work? Who's going to adopt it? It it seems... Thinking, Looking now with how much open source has grown and changed, you wouldn't think those were key questions, but we really had to figure all of that out as we went. Now, I think we have more of a playbook to do that, but we really didn't at that time. And you have to remember, even back then, open source still wasn't as widely adopted as it is today. I think the other big challenge was for us, how do you engage all these different competitors in marketing? Why on earth would they do a co marketing together? How do you get them to do that? How do you get them to talk and not try to influence it in one way or another? And that was really one of our key challenges. And what we did was try to find these zones of agreement and bring people to the table. And we, as working at the foundation, it gave us this very neutral way to do that. By the way, it was set up, we were able to bring in this kind of neutral, be a neutral entity and get these people to the table. After we did that, we created a playbook for it and helped launch about a dozen more of these projects. And some of them had budget, some didn't. I think that we had to find a lot of ways to be creative in both ways. There are many ways you can do marketing. You don't need a massive budget to do it. You really just need people with marketing expertise in your community or outsourcing it and people willing to participate in that who are part of your community. When I talk about open source, there are kind of two key ways that I describe it. I think that it's important to define how we talk about open source because people define it in different ways. When I talk about open source, I primarily mean pure open source software project like Linux or Kubernetes that cannot be bought or sold. These are ways you think about those types of projects. And then there's commercial open source companies that are commercializing or creating distributions of open source, like data stacks on Apache Cassandra, for example, or Armory on Spinnaker or Red Hat on Enterprise Linux. There are other companies like Tidelift too that are knitting these different pieces together. And so I run a marketing firm that specializes in working with these types of companies because we really understand that your community and your ecosystem is a competitive advantage for you. It's not competitive to you. It is actually a competitive advantage. They're not in competition and it really helps you to work with them. And we see this time and time again, when we worked at the Linux Foundation, if you can combine these marketing efforts and band together, it really benefits the whole. So going back to your other question about Cassandra, we started working with the Cassandra community earlier this year and The Apache is set up differently than the Linux Foundation. They don't have these kind of marketing working groups in the same way. You can create them if you're an Apache project, but the community has to do that themselves. At Linux Foundation, it was different because it was part of kind of the governance of the project. And so working with the Apache community has been quite different. We were actually brought in by DataStax to help create marketing for the open source Apache Cassandra community by my former colleague who worked we worked together at Cloud Foundry named Sam Ramji and he understood and knows that this is how you do open source marketing and how it can actually benefit you. So DataStacks actually brought us in to not do marketing for DataStacks, but to do marketing on behalf of the entire Cassandra community. And so we came in and we essentially get to know people in the community and try to understand what do they care about? What are their shared goals and what's the shared vision here? what are we trying to achieve together? And then we actually go out to all the different people who are participating, vendors, end users, other parts of the ecosystem, et cetera, and gather those stories and really try to tell and share those stories. So we've done that in a lot of different ways. Some of it's through public relations, for example. We talked about the 4.0 beta that came out this year. That was a really group effort from everybody in the community and we put together a blog that talked about here's all the great things that are happening in 4.0, you should go try it now. And then it's also other things like having people in the community and or us write content that we contribute to other publications that talks about the features of Cassandra or what's happening in the community or how to contribute or any number of things that are really important to the community and getting people involved. But it really comes back to what is that shared goal and shared vision that you have across all these different stakeholders in these communities.
2: Was there like a company that does like support contracts for Cassandra funding this or was this a grassroots type of deal?
1: We were brought in by DataStax to do that. So DataStax is funding us to essentially work with the Cassandra community because they understand the value of working with an open source community that their product is based on. That's really got important. It.
2: Yes. Yeah. Okay. If you already explained that, I apologize. I just went over. No, that's head. okay. <laughs> no, because I think that is definitely one of the most important things. Because there is always something. There's got to be a motivation and a reward at the end. But I think DataStax gets it in terms of like how open source works. I've seen what they've done in the past, and this whole campaign that they did wasn't like brought to you by
1: DataStax. It was just right. like
2: hey, we're part of the community, we're here. So I find that really cool when companies get it.
1: I mean, it can be pretty rare too. I think it's, as long as I've been doing tech and as long as I've been doing open source, people still, I think, get confused by, am I competing with my community or not? And really, I've seen it from both angles and really you're not. Really, it does bring you this advantage because you have all of these people who are part of this thing and you can leverage those people.
2: So next, you're at Isilon. I remember reading about it like way back in the day, and then it was acquired by EMC. Like, what did you do there? Because that just really interests me.
1: <laughs> that was a long time ago. So no, I, I know. I think early in my career, I worked at agencies. So I was at an agency at that time, and Isilon was one of our clients. I had worked a lot in the data storage space between them and LaCie and Three Par and some other ones like that. And later I've done some other data storage and yeah, we did a lot of PR and content for Iceland. Their goal was to go IPO and be acquired and we really helped them do that. So leading up to that, we did a lot of different PR to get them air cover to say, this is what Iceland's about. This is what they're doing. Here's their technology. Here's their customers. I think we had some goal of doing. 50 case studies in six months or something. And we hit it. I think we did a really good job. We actually met it. And then we weren't the sole reason they got acquired. Of course, course, their technology has to be good and so on and so forth. But it does help. Doing PR and having your company or client or project be visible is really important. And I think people think about marketing typically as those kind of annoying emails that you get or advertising, all this kind of stuff. And I think an enterprise that's just not gonna help you. What really helps you is thinking about what is of value to people and how can you give them something of value? Spamming people a thousand times is not something of value. You're gonna turn people off. You're never gonna harass someone into an enterprise sale. So what can you do instead that's actually gonna help educate people about your product? or your project and inform people so that they do want to check it out and adopt it. And I think that's, there is a fine line, the way that we approach marketing in enterprise, it might be different from other people who do these other types of things. We typically stay away from that.
0: How do you get your marketing copy in front of people though, right? Cause mailing lists are important for getting to people's inboxes, which then gets to the, the end users. And I understand the need to say, do work internally to figure out what are our values, what case studies should we look at, how do we go out and get those? So we could know better, but where do you have that gap between, okay, I need to market something and yeah, we're producing content. How do you make sure that people see the
1: content? So the landscape has changed quite a lot since I started working in marketing and PR, when I first started, there were a lot of journalists. And a lot of publications, and this was all kind of pre-2008 before social media platforms and all these things really significantly changed the media landscape. And now anyone can be a content creator. So we had to also shift what we were doing to match what was happening in the world and how do you get your information out there. The pandemic has also created another significant shift where yes, before I think some companies were doing things online, but now everyone is doing things online. And so there is just this mass proliferation of content out there. So it's all the more important that your content starts with being valuable. It's really quality over quantity. Have something that's really valuable. So the way that we approach it now is it depends on where you are in the cycle too. So if you're an early stage startup, your website, for example, doesn't have a lot of domain authority. You don't have a lot of people visiting your site. It's really not the best place to put your content. If you're an early stage startup or project or whatever, what you want to be doing is putting your content the majority of it somewhere else so there's a lot of really great sites out there like hacker Newin and dev2 and dzone that are self-publishing sites that will accept content they won't accept just everything it still has to be good and not overtly promotional but they will accept it and those are really great sites for any kind of early stage startup
2: High domain authority
1: high domain authority exactly and developers and technologists love those sites they are very valuable for early stage startups. And I think if you're a later stage project startup or company, you look at other different options too. You can do other paid types of sponsorships for content promotion. You can do contributed articles elsewhere, but that's how you get it out there. It's really today, you can do a mix of press outreach and then content you know, contributed articles. That's really a great way to do it. I just go back to make sure that your content, it's high quality. Low quantity. If you have high quality, high quantity, cool. But I would say focus on the quality part first. (laughs) Right.
0: Exactly. (laughs) What's interesting to me is I'm thinking of it in terms of a project that has two or three maintainers, maybe one maintainer, maybe they're part-time, maybe it's an evening. I'm trying to translate all of this into their world and how do you work there? Because I feel like enterprise and foundations and ospose, yes, everything you're saying makes a ton of sense. I get it. I'm there. It's awesome. I think one of the most interesting things from the open source perspective is that when you're working at that level, you have to convince a lot of your users and your users aren't necessarily coders, but also people higher up who would then say buy a whitelisted version or open core model of the open source or fund it. You have to convince them what open source is and how that works and then convince them of the product itself, right? So it's like a double hit. But for someone who runs a small React library, 10,000 stars or something, right? How do you market those? And it's one thing I'm really curious if you have any insight on.
1: Yeah, I would say, I mean, the principle really is the same. It's just a matter of time. So most of these people are already strapped for time and maybe they're not a great writer or something like that. So are there people in the community who are willing to participate and do marketing in that way? I think you need to have someone who has kind of marketing know-how and expertise, whether that's you, someone in your community, or whatnot or you outsource it but that's what i would say is look for those types of people who can contribute in that way and that's not always easy to find but if you're trying to build your presence for a project really those tool kits are the same it's just a matter of who can participate in that way when you think about doing marketing in a community there are a lot of people who work at different companies, they have different cultures, they have different reasons for participating. Maybe they're not aware that you actually want to have a marketing effort. So I think what's really important is to build some kind of architecture of participation for people in your community. And there are different ways you can do this. So for example, Kubernetes has built some marketing contribution guidelines into its GitHub docs. So it's really clear how you can participate and you can do that no matter what kind of contributor you are to the community if you can do that for any small library right you could say hey we need some help with marketing put some things into your github docs put some calls out to people see if people will participate and it's really clear how they can participate the other ways you can do that of course are to outsource and to find someone so i know that sustain oss you have this marketing working group conversation that you've started with how do you kind of develop these things You can also do that informally or formally within any project is create a marketing working group, see if you can find people who are willing to contribute. And I think it goes back to this conversation in the larger industry conversation around finding contributions that are non-technical because there are people who want to contribute to projects and maybe they don't have technical skills, but they can contribute to docs or writing or content, et cetera. And it's, can you give them, just create a way for them to participate?
0: One of the things I'm curious about is, and this might maybe not that interesting for most of our listeners, but I'm really curious is how do you pitch marketing to open source foundations as something that they need to do because the return is so small immediately? Like it's hard to say, I'm going to go out there and get you more contributors or commits like what's your pitch
2: <laughs> right? stars right. i'll get your githubs
1: stars let's just set that metric aside shall we <laughs> <laughs> um, so that is a really great question what are those quote unquote kpis in an open source project what do we look at i yeah. think things like lines of code stars those are all i think you should just set those aside that really doesn't tell you about the health of an open source project it might be an indicator of maybe activity, but that's about it. From a marketing perspective, what we really look at is what's the kind of overall share of voice for a project. And if that term isn't familiar to you, it's really what's all the times that your project is being mentioned on the internet. So in forums and press releases and content on stack overflow, et cetera, because that really does show at some level, are people really interested in this project? and in this product. And so we really look at Share a Voice as one of the key metrics in an open source project and how we evaluate how things are doing. This also matters because if you have a lot of people in your ecosystem, that's how you could get other people to participate. So let's take going back to Cassandra, for example, we have several people who are vendors who have products built on top of Cassandra. All of those people are doing marketing for Cassandra as well. Those people are all contributing to the marketing effort at some level. If you at the core of that project can give them tools to be promoting Cassandra in other different ways, then that helps everyone as a whole. So you are creating something from the core of the project and then distributing it to people in your ecosystem. They distribute it to their communities and it really has this kind of ripple effect. And that's really where you see I think Matt AC was on your show before talking about the pie of open source getting bigger. And that's really what happens. It's growing the pie for everybody. And that's the benefit of this kind of open source marketing model.
0: Love it. Have you ever had to deal with people who are closed source and try to convince them to go open?
1: Interesting question. Actually, most of the companies we work with are open source at some level, whether it's open core or straight up open source or commercial open source. I'm not sure that we've worked with very many closed source companies, in fact, in the past few years.
0: Banks and stuff. I mean, there's a ton of code going on in those institutions. that isn't open source. But they're using open source.
1: They are. In fact, going back to the open daylight example, I think one of the key ways that we knew we were gaining traction was when we found out that AT&T had adopted open daylight. And we found out because they had said something on a user list because, of course, they found some bug or issue with it. So, of course, that's when they reach out and talk to us. But it was really amazing (laughs) to see them participate and contribute. And we really felt like after that first six months I mentioned early on with educating the market, it's so validating to know that end users are actually using this open source project. So to your point, most of those companies are using open source at some level from the government to banks, to airlines, to I mean, almost everybody's using open source at some level these days.
0: And they're all well, using think, it, but giving back to it as much as right. a much smaller sense of the pie. Right. Sure. Michael Rogers won
2: a couple of episodes ago, and he said 500 out of the Fortune 500 companies all use NPM. And it's like, I don't think anyone can dispute that. It's like you no. you can't not use it. So. Yeah, everyone is using, but as Richard said, it's contributing is the issue.
1: Right. And I think you're seeing more of these bigger companies learning how to contribute back and also understanding why. I think that's been a question. Why would I contribute back? Why would I have my developers spend time on doing this? But you'll find that it is really important because it makes you more part of this community. It makes it so that people will answer your questions when you ask them and so on. It's just, it really is part of that whole giving back mentality. I know a lot of companies like Comcast does inner sourcing where they've taught their people how to do open source internally before they kind of go out and do it externally. So a lot of companies are really moving in this direction.
2: Yeah, no, totally. I think that it kind of used to be a myth where it was like, oh, if you contribute back to open source, you'll recruit the best engineers. And now it's like, I can't imagine it not being that. If you want to get the best engineers in the door, they require that.
1: Yeah. And I think we always joked about turning your badge at the door when you're in an open source project, if you're in there, you're part of the project. You should not be thinking about your company when you're doing community work. And I think that's really important. And I see, I mean, a lot of people do that. Most of the people that I've worked with have done that.
0: I've heard the opposite. So. I know there's some companies that have a policy of, you have to use your private account to collaborate on an open source project because otherwise the company itself, their motives could be seen. And so it's like, it's dangerous for a company to show that you have people working on a project, which to me seems disingenuous. And going back to, you know, some of what you touched on is resonated with me with uh, the working group that we had here in sustain on authentic participation, right? How do you authentically participate as an enterprise company? Because at some point, your motives may not align with the maintainer's motives. I, I think so turning is, your badge at the door is tough.
2: Go ahead. But the badge is on your GitHub profile. You are part of that company. So it's sort of
0: like not company. all the time. Not if you set up a different account, right? Uh, so I've heard of true. companies that do that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I guess.
0: So I for instance, was, Red Hat, right? Red Hat uh, demands that all of their employees who work in open source do so on their private accounts. Cause they don't want Red Hat to be everywhere that may be misquoted, that may be misunderstanding it, but that's what I thought happened there, which is really interesting. It's cool because people get to do stuff, but it's also doesn't gel well with me, put, put well, it that way.
1: So if you look at a community like Cassandra again, when I was trying to figure out, well, who is part of this community and who are the kind of key people in the PMC and this, that, and the other, and you go look at GitHub and you just don't know. You have to do some digging to figure out where they thing. actually work. I think that's okay at some level because it can be distracting to maybe getting work done so I I can appreciate why people do that. I use my Gmail account for doing work in open source communities as well. And it's not like I'm trying to abstract or hide away my job or where I work, but it's just my contribution is my contribution. And I don't want that to be viewed differently by where I work. I think that's why I see people do that, because is the contribution good or bad? you shouldn't judge it based on where they, someone works. And so it, it's a way to just kind of come in as a neutral entity.
0: I agree that it's good for the individual developer. I think it's a net negative for the maintainers. If they don't know that PayPal is working on their code and could be someone that can reach out to get funding. So mm. it, 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 there's both sides, it's what I'm looking at, right? So if you have one person who's really vocal in your community and you don't know that they're vocal because they work for ice, and they have a specific need, that's a problem for the maintainer if they're working on a chef module. It's something that's just kind of confusing to me. And knowing who your users are is really important. In some cases, I do agree that open source should be meritocratic. It just so rarely is. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's just, it's interesting to think about. Going back to where we are today. The pandemic has obviously changed a lot of things around marketing. For instance, this week is a bad week to go online and talk on Twitter. This is the election week, by the way, it's November 6th when we're recording this. Because Twitter is just totally just politics, politics, all the way down. It's turtles everywhere. So what have you had to change with how you market stuff to get in front of people's eyes over the past six months?
1: So during the pandemic, we've all been trying to figure out how to not overload people who are overloaded by so much content and information because everyone is doing everything digital all the time. Like all these virtual events that we're going to that people are definitely fatigued about. Exhausting. They're exhausting. Absolutely (laughs) exhausting. There's just too many. And there's a lot of talk right now in my space around are people actually going to participate in events next year? What's that going to look like? Are we doing as many CFPs and whatnot? We're having those same conversations. And what it always comes down to is again, how valuable is this? Is this something that is going to interest people? Is it not just fluffy, but is it actually concrete and valuable and something that people will participate in? And that is subjective, but I think you have to evaluate that based on whatever project or company or or client that you're working on and figure out what that bar is for you. Is this something that people you think are going to attend or is it just something you feel like you have to do to get something out the door. And I think you have to evaluate that really individually within your team or group or community. I went to the all things open event that was a couple of weeks ago. And I really liked that format because it wasn't just pre-recorded content. A lot of people these days are pre-recording stuff and just playing it, which is nice that you can watch things on demand. And I'm not saying that's a bad model, but what I liked about all things open was that they did almost all of it live. And it felt like you were part of something in that moment. The downside was, of course, you are gonna have people who are gonna miss out on a live event. I certainly missed a lot of things that I wish I would have seen in real time and had to watch later. But I appreciated that format because you did feel like you're part of something. You can communicate directly with people like you're at an event again. I met some new people online during that event. I really liked that format. And I think if people, Take that approach where how can you make it not just feeding people content, but make something more interactive? That's probably gonna get you farther in 2021 than just having something pre-recording and push it out the door.
0: Co-create all the things. This is why it's sustained, we always have just one-to-many talks. It's just one guy on stage and everyone just listens and there's never any interaction at our conferences. That was sarcasm. Oh listeners.
1: <laughs> I was like, you also have women too, right? Not just guys.
0: <laughs> yeah. Nope. Just just men. I apologize for that as just well. Just checking. No, I got to get that word out of my lexicon.
1: I wanted to mention something about how you actually kind of do some of this disaggregated marketing. Go ahead. So when you think about doing marketing in a community, one of the most important things that you need is the right personality. I think it's important to understand open source technically and just really understand the landscape that you're in, but also how to work with disaggregated communities and ecosystems, because these people do not work at the same company. They're not on your payroll. You are trying to get them to do things on behalf of the community. And really what you need at the center of all of that is the right personality to glue those things together and really put aside that ego to find that common ground and not to be influenced by the loudest voices a marketing person, a really good marketing people will seek out and include all of those voices, not just kind of the loudest ones. I remember in an earlier podcast, you mentioned charismatic leaders, and that is a benefit to some projects, but that's an unfair advantage. Not everyone is charismatic. Then how do you level the playing field for projects that maybe don't have a charismatic leader? And the way you can do that is to find someone who is plays in this marketing role, who does go and seek out all these other types of contributions and tries to shine a light on things that are happening, not just with individuals, but in all parts of your community. And I think that it's not just marketing, but that goes a long way in life in general. I think if you have those right personalities leading the efforts, then you're going to get a lot more done. And really the benefit of that is I like to think about the community as kind of like a prism. So if you have your one contribution that you're putting in refracted through this community, you get this beautiful array on the other side of all these different colors. And that's just not something you can do in many other projects. If you work in a specific company, you're talking about just your company. But in open source, you're talking about this kind of broader spectrum of people and contributions and things that are surrounding your ecosystem. I remember in the early 2000s, and you had people in the embedded Linux community who were looking at ways to improve power consumption in satellites and that were going into space. So that was really important. You had needed a small footprint for everything. When they figured that out, they put it back upstream and that was then adopted by people in the supercomputing community. And they were able to make these massive supercomputers have draw far less power and that kind of mashup oh. is something that is just not possible in closed source world. Right. And that's what I talk about. When you think about this community and open source as this kind of prism, which is it's what your contribution comes out, you put that in. And on the other side, you get this kind of really beautiful array of things. And I think that's what we try to achieve with marketing, that rainbow effect. And today more than ever, especially tech is not an island. Our world is extraordinarily complex but I really see us in the tech space continuing to kind of bend toward this openness and collaboration. I think that benefits the whole. I think you'll continue to see that, especially as our world just gets more and more complex.
0: I love love the prism analogy. That is super cool. Very good. And I also really like the anything involving space I'm in, I'm I'm there. Yeah. When you said that, when you said that, that my my ears
2: perked (laughs) up, I was like, wait, what? Wait, satellite, supercomputers, power.
1: Nice. Some of my favorite things. (laughs) I worked in the HPC space early on too. And it was actually another data storage client that worked with Mm -hmm. a lot of supercomputer people. And so I love it. I I geek out on all of that stuff. (laughs) Yeah, It's It's been so fascinating to work where I have in tech, both on the business side and the agency side, and really just getting this front row seat to such cool innovation in this space over the last 20 years. How many things that I've been able to been very privileged to be a part of. It's been really cool.
0: Yeah, I agree. I also really like when you talk about what marketers should do. I remember reading somewhere some marketing book I was reading that the best marketer is hidden. You don't realize they're a marketer. It's not necessarily perfidious or insidious or any other idious is hideous, but it's just, it's not about them. It's about the project. It's about the other contributors in open source, which is great. It kind of reminds me of Aragorn, right? A servant of the enemy would look fairer, but seem fouler, which is probably the most obscure quote I'll do today. But <laughs> I just I really like that you shared. So thank you.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's and I'm Yeah, I've not heard that analogy before, but I think that's really true. And I am definitely a behind the scenes person. I'd rather not be on a stage in front of, you know, I think of marketing kind of like you're a backstage manager for a play and you're trying to make everything run really smoothly for all the other people on the stage and and really shine a light on them literally and figuratively.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing about marketing. If people were interested in seeing the awesome content that you presumably put out, where would they go?
1: So I'm on Twitter at Melissa underscore B2B and I talk a lot about open source, as you might imagine. And of course, our website is Constantia.io.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on this podcast then that must've been quite the step to step into the limelight for a couple of seconds, (laughs) such as it is (laughs) speaking of limelights and stages and the band rush, let's move on to spotlight where we actually do shine light on other things in the world that we have liked that have helped us out that need more love. So Justin, what is your spotlight today?
2: My spotlight today is fingerprint.js. It's a modern inflexible browser fingerprint library. They have a really cool readme with a lot of great marketing upsells, but tastefully, it was, it's pretty cool. So basically, what fingerprinting is like, you can view the user agent, which is key for marketers like me. So I can see what type of operating system they're using so I can target that ethically. Anyway, that's it.
0: Awesome. Their readme is really fascinating because they actually have an ad in the readme.
2: Yeah, I'm, but I'm it's tasteful
0: it's tasteful. Yeah, I it's think. great. Yeah, It's great. I love it. My spotlight is alex.github.io slash NYT 2020 election scraper. I am a data nerd when it comes to elections. And someone has made a website that allows you to very easily see what's happening every minute in all of the battleground states right now. And I have been refreshing this nonstop since yesterday when I discovered it, although they also have an enable notifications, so it'll ding me anyway, but I'm still refreshing it. And I just really love, I don't know, it just feels like democracy at work. And I guess I like democracy on some level. It always makes me feel slightly patriotic, which is not something I try to be, but I just really enjoy that people have come together to show me data faster. So that's really cool. Melissa, what's your spotlight?
1: So I have kind of an old school spotlight, but I want to give them a shout out because I truly appreciate it. It's this... Scribus or Scribus. I'm not actually sure how to say it. It's Scribus.net. It's an open source desktop publishing tool. And I use it actually to put together my community's monthly newsletter. So I'm very active in my local community. It's a rural community. We have a monthly newsletter to kind of keep everyone involved. And I've been using Scribus for years to publish that on a monthly basis. So thank you for keeping that going.
0: Awesome. I will have to check out Scribus. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for coming on this podcast. It was great having you. Thanks,
2: Melissa.
1: Thanks. It was great to be here.